Jeremiah 24. I've said this before, and, and I'll say it again, that as we go through this particular book of Jeremiah, and as we have been going through it for a number of months, almost two years actually, uh, in, in Jeremiah, we, um, we've come to realize that much of what we see in this book has a parallel in our day and time to our own nation. And I think a lot of that we're going to see in this in this chapter tonight. Uh, so that sounds like a broken record. It's going to be like about every chapter from here on to the very end. We're going to see that. But uh, but I think it's it's good for us to see it, and I think it's good for us to be awakened to, to these spiritual needs that our country has. Jeremiah 24 verses 1 through 3. The Lord showed me, and there, were, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. And then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad, very bad. Which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Shall we pray? Father, it is our desire tonight to take some time to, to pray, Lord, for the sick in our congregation, in our midst, in our families, for those that we know that are going through great struggles spiritually, but physically as well. And we, Lord, in our own hearts, we, we probably have a number of people that we want to lift up to you. I hope and pray that uh, this would awaken us to those, those needs and, and to those people tonight. We pray, Lord, for uh, Esther, our dear sister, who had some knee surgery today, I believe knee replacement surgery, but... Lord, I know that it is a very painful operation, and we thank you that you brought her through this. We pray for her recovery and that all that had to be invasive, Lord God, to cause the pain, we pray will be healed quickly. The pain itself will subside rapidly, Lord. And that a recovery time will be quicker than, than most. But we do pray, Father, that you would continue to have your hand upon her. And, and uh, just strengthen her, Lord, so that she can be able to walk more freely. And, and do all the things, Lord God, that she desires to do for you. In, in whatever ministry that, that you call her to. Lord, we pray for... Uh, Rose Alvarado's daughter, Mercy, we pray that you would 
help her, Lord God, after uh, uh, a struggle that she had yesterday with a seizure. And, and um, some stitches that she had to have on her lip. We pray, Father, for healing of these things, Lord God, that uh, you who are able and because you know us as well as you do to heal her, Lord, and strengthen her through this particular battle that she's going through. And for the many, Lord God, that we have prayed for this week and are praying for who have who are struggling, Lord, with, with, with cancer or, or any number of other uh, great physical issues, Father. Uh, you know them by name, and we've lifted them up to you right now in our own hearts. Lord, we know that you are able, Father, to bring healing to each and every one. So we ask, Father God, for a move of your Holy Spirit upon our sick today, that they, Lord God, will give testimony of how great and powerful you are to lift them, Lord God, from their, from their ailments. Tonight we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will take us through this passage of Scripture and teach us, Lord, not only what it, what it means and what it represents to Israel and to Judah, not only in the days of Jeremiah, but, Lord, especially how these, will, these things will, will, will still be uh, fulfilled in, in, in the coming days. And I pray, Father, that, uh, Lord, as this becomes a reminder of where our own nation is today, we pray for, for this country. We pray for our nation. We pray, Father God, that you, Lord, will restore once again in, in the hearts of, of every believer in Jesus Christ the need to stand for what is truth and for what is right. We ask, Lord God, that uh, you give us opportunities to tell others about Jesus Christ and not to stop until the day of Christ. And not to stop for any reason that may be that uh, people are, are coming against us for one reason or another. May we not stop. May we continue on to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost to those who are in need of salvation. We ask this tonight, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, it would be good for us to begin with a short history lesson to, to bring us up to date with where we are in, in our study of Jeremiah's prophecy to Judah. Somewhere between 606 and 605 B.C., Prince Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian army of his father, Nabopolassar, against the allied forces of Assyria and Egypt, defeating them at Carchemish near the top of the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent would be land that would extend from where Israel is all along the Mediterranean up over uh, the areas of Assyria and uh, Babylon. So it, it covers a good, uh, good portion going from the Mediterranean all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates uh, River. The victory gave Babylon total domination 
and superiority over the Near East. With Babylon's conquest, Egypt and its vassal states, there were, there were certain states that were kind of subordinate to Egypt, uh, Judah included at that particular time. These passed under Babylonian control. But not long after this uh, Nabopolassar died, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, it made uh, Nebuchadnezzar king. And almost immediately the new king moves south to invade Judah, which also happened in 605 B.C. So we know that it was a very rapid ex- exchange of leadership and then right into the domination of, of, uh, and conquering of, uh, of Judah. He took some royal and noble captives to Babylon. We learned this in Daniel chapter 1. And there we also see that Daniel himself, the prophet, is taken uh, to Babylon at that very same time. So uh, Daniel, whose name means God is my judge or God is judging or God will judge, plus uh, some of the vessels from Solomon's temple, all of these things were taken uh, at this particular time. Yeah, 605 B.C. This was the first of Judah's three depart, uh, departures or deportations, I should say, in which the Babylonians took groups of Judites uh, to Babylon. Now Jehoiakim was the king of Judah at that time. And you can see that in Second Kings chapter 24. But Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah or Coniah, he succeeded him just a few years later in 598 B.C. Now Jehoiakim reigned only three months and ten days. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we focused on the last four uh, kings of Judah. You can read that again in 2 Chronicles 36. Judah was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar again. And at the turn of the year, which is uh, in 597 B.C., he took Jehoiakim to Babylon along with most of Judah's remaining leaders and the rest of the national treasures, including young Ezekiel. So now Ezekiel, the prophet that follows Jeremiah in in line here in Scripture, uh, goes in this particular time frame to Babylon. You can see that in 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36 again. And then a third and a final deportation took place approximately 11 years later. In 586 B.C., Jehoiakim's younger brother, Mataniah, whose name Nebuchadnezzar changed to Zedekiah, was then Judah's puppet king. So Zedekiah really was was really just a a little puppet uh, leader under Nebuchadnezzar of of the Judean people. He rebelled against Babylon's sovereignty by secretly making a treaty with Pharaoh Hophra, under pressure from Jewish nationalists. That we're going to study later in Jeremiah 37 and 38. But after a two-year siege, uh, Jerusalem fell. And Nebuchadnezzar returned to Jerusalem. He burned the temple, broke down the city walls, and took all but the poorest of the Jews captive to Babylon. Now, he also took Zedekiah at this time prisoner to Babylon after he executed his sons, and put out the king's eyes at Riblah in Aramea, which is modern Syria. Now that brings us now to the vision. And this is where we are up to this point. The vision given by the Lord to Jeremiah, which actually would have occurred after Jeconiah and the others were taken to Babylon in 597. So this vision is dated around 597 B.C. 
when Jeconiah is taken to Babylon and Zedekiah becomes a king. So we've, we've seen a little bit of the history of these kings, but this is where this vision is given, because Zedekiah is still king and he's still in Jerusalem. So in verse 1, let's go back with that, uh, with that time frame and, and that history uh, fresh to our minds and hearts. It says in verse 1, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths. That doesn't mean the smiths and the Jones and the tailors and all of that. But the smiths would be like the ironsmiths and the, the woodsmiths, you know, carpenters. And, and, and anybody, a smith was somebody who worked on things. He was a, a, a tradesman, as it were, of any, many different kinds of things. Whether working with gold or silver or iron or whatever. So it says uh, that after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the princes of Judah, the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. That's setting where we are now. 597 B.C., uh, thereabouts, and Zedekiah is king. Now, it needs to be noted that the princes are these royal counselors. The princes were royal people, but they were like counselors to the king. The carpenters, the craftsmen, the smiths were carried away to Babylon simply because Nebuchadnezzar was particularly interested in these types of people since he could utilize them in his government and extensive building projects. So rather than just destroy all the people, he takes people that he could use. He takes people that he can help build his kingdom and his palace and his uh, government uh, and, and his buildings and his city that, uh, you know, uh, for example, Babylon itself, the city of Babylon, uh, to be built uh, for his glory, as it were. And he would use these uh, wise people who were wise at one time in, in, in Judah to do it. They were also considered the cream of the country's leadership. Uh, turn with me to Second Kings chapter 24. There's a lot of ground laying that we're doing here tonight for this particular chapter. So uh, we're getting a picture of those that went on to, uh, to Babylon. Second Kings 24 verse 14 says, Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. And you have to think that Nebuchadnezzar was, was, a, was a wise tyrant, a wise leader, a wise ruler, a wise military man. Uh, he takes all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captains and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land. He carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000. All who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Cheap labor. I mean, good labor, but you didn't have to pay them anything. <laughs> they were captives. And to live, they would do what the king said. But in contrast to those who were exiled. Now see, this is a picture of those who went to Babylon. In contrast to those who were exiled, the people who remained in Judah and Jerusalem would actually have a superficial confidence in Zedekiah. 
It was, it was kind of a confidence based on a couple of things. Uh, but again, it was superficial. It wasn't really a deep down confidence. But they had this confidence in Zedekiah due to his conspiracy with surrounding peoples. You know, he had, he had tried to set up a, you know, a way to, uh, to get out from under the, the rule of, of Babylon in Jerusalem. And then they also had their trust. And remember this. They also kept their trust in the false prophets. The false prophets kept telling them, Hey, listen, the exiles, they're, they're no good. We'll see that in just a minute. The exiles, they're no good. That, that's why they left them, uh, or they took them with them to, to Babylon. We're, we're left here. We're, gonna, you know, we're where we need to be. God said He's going to give us the land, so we're going to be okay. That was false prophecy. That was false confidence. That was, it wasn't going to help them at all thinking that they were, everything was okay because they stayed in Judah and Jerusalem. So, Jeremiah saw them. You know, the, the prophet is seeing this, and he saw that the attitude of the king and his supporters in Judah was wrong. And while they were proclaiming a new day for Judah, because you know what they were, you know what they were prophesying? They were prophesying hope and change. You hear me? You hear what I'm saying? They were prophesying hope and change. The future would actually lie. The future for Israel would actually lie with the exiled in Babylonian captivity and not with Zedekiah and his backers, not with Zedekiah and his false prophets, not with Zedekiah and his policies and so whether in a vision or in actuality God shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs in the temple courtyard which is where the people brought their first fruit offerings the first fruit was the best fruit the first fruit was supposed to be the best fruit given to God first offered to God first and i got to tell you, the more I was studying this, this particular chapter, the more I kept thinking about my mom's fig tree when I was a kid. So I hated to have to pull figs down. But I began, I, be, I began to realize how true the scripture is about figs. Because we find out that the best figs, when they're, when they're first ripe, the first ripening of figs comes in about June and July. I'll talk about this in a little bit. So I'm just going to repeat myself. <laughs> but, but that's when they're really the best. And then, you know, others are ripening at that time. The ones who ripen later, they're going to be good, but they'll, they'll ripen all the way up to September. That's the second harvest of figs. But it's the first one in June, July. That is the first fruit offering. That is what would be brought first to the temple. So that gives you the idea of where we are here. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jeremiah has been given the vision, been asked what he sees. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, good figs, very good. And the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. 
I remember bad figs. I think those were the ones that made me not want to eat figs for a while. They're really bad. So Jeremiah saw that in one basket, there were very good figs, like the highly valued figs that ripen and mature in that time frame of June, July. And they are really the best tasting figs. While the majority of figs are not ready until September. Now, it's interesting that Hosea, the prophet, describes Israel in this manner before they fall into the sin of idolatry. Listen carefully. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. The prophet Hosea says this. He says, I found Israel. Of course, this is coming from the Lord. The Lord speaking through Hosea. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as, notice, the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Speaking of that first season or that first ripening. But they went to Baal Peor. And you'll see what that is in just a moment. They went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. Now do you see the first word there, Baal? What does that tell you? That's talking about Baal. So they separated themselves to that shame, which means they moved toward idolatry. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. And I find that one of the saddest verses of Scripture here about Israel because it says that they became an abomination like the thing they loved. They no longer love God. Now they love the abomination. Isn't that interesting? But you want to know when this was? This was prior to entering into the promised land. This was prior to entering into the promised land. Following the prophecies of Balaam. Go to Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, where are we in Numbers? Well, we're still with Moses. They haven't come to the promised land yet. They're still in the wilderness. But notice here, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, which was a place or town called Shittim. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women in Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal, or Baal. Israel was joined to them. Do you know what, that, 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 what the picture is here? Joined to them like a, a, a man to a wife, in, in essence, a, a man to a woman? Joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So we're, we're saying that they have had this problem for a long time. This problem of falling into the harlotry and the idolatry of other gods simply because they haven't kept their eyes on the one true God. And so getting back to the two baskets of figs here, we see how different these two offerings were. Again, It was at the temple. It was at the place where offerings were given. It was at the place where the first fruit offerings were supposed to be given to God. And so we see these two different offerings there. A bad, or a batch of good figs and a batch of bad figs. By the way, food was given as a gift through these offerings as well to the priests as part of their livelihood. So you get a picture then that the food doesn't go to waste. God, of course, would allow the priest to use that for their own. 
livelihood. Nevertheless, they were still to be an offering unto the Lord. It was still to be an offering to the Lord. Now, note that one basket was filled with the fresh, juicy figs, whereas the other basket was filled with figs that were so old that they were on the verge of rotting. And I find it interesting that in the King James Version account here, in verse 2, those of you who have King James will see this very quickly, the, the bad figs are described this way. I'll show it to you. It says, One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And notice, And the other basket had very naughty figs. Very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. You know, we, we, when we hear that word naughty, you know, you know, naughty, you did a naughty thing. That's kind of the right idea, though. Because the word for naughty there is the word in the Hebrew, rach, which means evil, wicked, sin. Naughty. It had very naughty, evil, wicked figs which could not be eaten, they were so bad. And verse 3 expands the definition and the description of these figs. It says, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they were so bad. The evil, the very evil, that cannot be eaten, they were so bad. I believe that's King James there. But when we think of the word naughty, when we think of the word naughty, We normally consider, what do we consider? Think, think for just a moment. We normally consider shameful, even abominable things that are done by people, and usually those things are sexual in nature. Well, think about this for just a moment. Much of the sexual licentiousness our society has found itself in for the last 40 to 50 years is the product of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. It was an age, and it still is. We can't say it was, it still is. It is an age when sex is used to advertise practically every product that is sold, certainly most of the products. Newspapers, magazines, films, television, radio, videos, especially now the Internet. Little can be read or seen for more than a few brief moments before some sexual image or insinuation has bombarded the human mind. Society is, is being taught that all forms of sexual behavior are acceptable. That's where we are right now. Society is being taught that all forms of sexual behavior are acceptable. Adultery living together outside of marriage, premarital sex, spouse swapping, homosexuality, pornography, sex with children, it's called pedophilia, pedophilia, masochism, sadism, bestiality, and a whole bunch of other philias that I didn't even want to put down. Lawmakers, lawmakers in the U.S. are doing their best, and I'm speaking about right now, 
Lawmakers in the U.S. are doing their best to place some of these aberrant practices under the list of behaviors protected by that hate crimes bill that they're still debating. While doing nothing, folks, while doing nothing to protect Christians from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason I bring this up is because that if this particular hate bill passes in the way that uh, its proponents want, then to preach from this pulpit or any pulpit that preaches, that wants to preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, will be considered, uh, it would be a considered a crime to come against some of these practices I just read about. The list that you just saw. But instead, you see, Christians who believe the Bible and say so, I don't know if you know this, but you've got to keep up with what's going on. Christians who believe the Bible and say so are now labeled by our current administration as terrorists. And they use two words throughout all of their writings about this. Whether real or perceived. Real or perceived. You know what that says? There is no more free speech in America. If, that, if, that, if that's going to be the case. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached from the very beginning with the founding fathers. Even to the extent that if you've done your homework, you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ was even preached in the capital. There were church services being held in the capital for a number of years. There's a lot that we need to know about the history of our country that's being washed over today. But how interesting that if we preach the gospel, not, you know, when it says hate crimes, you know, we're not preaching because we hate people. We love people. We want them to come to know Christ. We know that there are sins, no matter what those sins are. To take a person from, from here into hell and from eternal separation from God. And we don't want that for anybody. So need I say more? You love Jesus, you might be called a terrorist. So in one basket were good figs. In the other there were such bad figs that no one could eat them. In Jeremiah's day... It wasn't uncommon for people to bring less than their best to the Lord. It wasn't uncommon for them to bring less than their best to the Lord. What are we supposed to bring when we come to the Lord? We need to bring our best, isn't it? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? But in Jeremiah's day, as even in ours, we don't bring our best to the Lord anymore. Because when you consider that bad offering of figs, such offerings like that were unacceptable to the Lord. They were unacceptable to the Lord. As is pointed out in Malachi's prophecy, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Listen to these words of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? He's saying this to his own people, through the prophet Malachi. If I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord? 
the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. He's not even talking really directly to the people. He's talking to the priests. And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And immediately he answers in verse 7, You offered defiled food on my altar. Right there. You offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? I think I've mentioned this, the practice that if they were going to give a tenth of what they had, the tithe, they got smart. And they lined up their, they, they lined up their sheep. Let's say sheep. If they had sheep, maybe it was some other animal. If they had sheep, they lined up their sheep. And every tenth one, they made sure that it was not a real good sheep. So all the good ones would go, the first nine. And then when the tenth would come over, they had a stick that would hold over and as they passed under the stick, when the tenth one came, they stopped and said, Here's, this one's the Lord's. But they already set it up so that the Lord would get the worst one, not the best. Do you know that people still do that today? That's what I'm saying when I say that we don't give the best to the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. So in verse 8 it says, When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, speaking of whatever offering is to be given, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Give it to the governor. See what he says. In other words, give it to the government. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor. That he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. That's pretty heavy. Makes us think. Am I giving my best to God? He's worthy of it. Besides, it belongs to him anyway. Everything belongs to the Lord. If you love Jesus Christ, you belong to the Lord. You don't even belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. Well, with that in mind, the Lord now explains to Jeremiah what these baskets of figs represent. So verse 4, it says of our text, Jeremiah 24, verse 4, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, notice, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good, into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now the basket of good figs represents the true believers among the Jews who were carried into captivity by Babylon. Now now you might be thinking, and I set it up this way so you, you would think. How many are you thinking right now? You thinking? 
No, nobody's hands are up. Come on, you've got to think. Are you thinking about what I just said? The basket of good figs represents the true believers among the Jews who were carried into captivity. So I want you to think. Now, you might be thinking that after all that we've heard in Jeremiah's prophecy, that there were none on the Lord's side. Where did the true believers come from? Are you thinking? All right. We have to always remember that with God there is always a remnant. With God there is always a remnant. There's always a remnant of God's people. And many times the Lord is the only one who knows there is. One problem, of course, is that too many carnal-minded believers lack the courage to stand for what is right. They get caught up with everybody else. You remember Aaron, Moses' brother? When Moses didn't come down from the mountain... The people kept egging him on. Hurry up. Come on, Aaron. You're the one that has the talent to make us, a, make us the God that's up on the mountain. You know, make an image of him so we can worship him. Moses is dead. He's not coming down. And Aaron made that calf of gold. Those who lack courage sometimes need an awakening. And it's interesting that those who do experience it through suffering. They experience the awakening through suffering. It's been said that the best men may be the greatest sufferers. The best men may be the greatest sufferers. And that doesn't exclude women. The good figs represent the Jews who suffered most severely from the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. And this, so I want you to listen carefully. They suffered most severely from the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar because they were torn from their homes, they were robbed of their property. And they were driven into captivity. The bad figs, on the other hand, they represent the, the seemingly more fortunate Jews over whose head the tide of invasion passes. You know, they're, they're still there. They're still home. There seems to be some hope. So they're, you know, it leaves them still in their homes in an apparently easy, calm along with those who escaped from the invasion by their flight to Egypt, those who thought, well, things are going to get bad here, we're going to just escape to Egypt. Perhaps Paul's exhortation came too many years late for them. That exhortation, uh, I'd like to read, is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, which should wake us up as well today. He says, for when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. 
Now, I know that Paul didn't write that to make it go back in time to the ones who were living in Jerusalem, but do you understand the point? The fact of the matter is, Jeremiah preached it all along. Those are false prophets who are giving you peace and safety. Those are false prophets who are telling you everything's going to be okay. They're false prophets who are going to tell you that we're going to get we're going to change everything and, 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 and you can count on us. But many times the, the very good people are not only not spared, but suffer the most severe calamities. Now listen to this passage of Scripture you know from Isaiah 53 because it speaks of our Lord and Savior. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now, we talk, we're talking about very good people. We're, in, in, in that particular state, we're talking about the best person. <laughs> the only good person. The only perfect person. The only good man. And what happened to him? But ha- our understanding has to come clear that... That if we're going through any kinds of suffering, what is God teaching us through it? What is God taking us through it so that we can learn from Him? Or, even more importantly, what is God allowing us to go through so that we can draw near to Him and be strengthened by Him and begin to believe Him that He said, I'll be with you always and I'll, I'll take care of you. But you've got to trust me. What is it going to take? In Hebrews chapter 12, we know this passage, of course, it also comes from the Old Testament and Proverbs, but, but in Hebrews 12, verse 5 and following, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. In other words, to sons of God, believers in Christ. My son did not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If, you're enduring, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, what, uh, what son is there whom a father does not correct and discipline? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastens us to seem best to them, but He for our profit. See, when God chastens us, He chastens us for for our benefit, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Wow! I wonder how many people have forgotten that part of our lives as Christians. And we're called to be holy. Isn't that what Peter tells us in the very first letter that he writes to the church? As it says in the book of Leviticus, Be ye holy as I am holy. That's God's words to His people. So he says that we are chastened as as seems best 
to the Lord for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness, His being set apart. That means our being set apart for the things of God. Verse 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Yeah. (laughs) Some of you remember the switch or the belt. The moment it was a little painful. Or the paddle, as it were. We used to have paddles years ago. Now it's against the law to have them. I I think I became a better person because of the paddle. I hope so. But nowadays, you can't touch that. You can't touch that person with that thing. You know, it's. So we're trying to correct somebody nowadays. They just do this to you, right? Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, 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 it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by the chastening. Trained by the discipline. Trained by the suffering. That is only for a moment. You see, although the captivity was a catastrophic event, it could not stop the promises of God from being fulfilled. God was going to use the captivity to save His people. Notice the wording that He uses here in our text in verses 4-7. through So I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good. For I will set my eye on them for good. And I will bring them back to this land. God would watch over them and return them to the promised land. He takes them out so that they could trust in Him. He would cause them to flourish. He would cause them to be built like a building under construction or a plant that that grows. No one would tear them down. No one would uproot them. And as both history... And the Bible indicate for us, after their captivity, they return to, Ju- to Jerusalem. They return to the land. Are God's promises not faithful? They are faithful. Every promise of God you can count on. Well, what about the bad fruit? The bad fruit that stayed in Jerusalem and Judah, actually, they actually thought that those who were taken into exile were the bad guys. I mentioned that earlier. Those who stayed in Jerusalem thought that the exile people were the bad guys. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 11. Listen to the wording here. It says in verse 14, (coughs) Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said. Notice, this is what the ones who are still in Jerusalem are saying. Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. They're remaining in Jerusalem. They're thinking, oh, we're the good guys. 
And all the ones going into captivity are the bad guys. It, isn't God something? He always turns things around. If you want to go up, you've got to go down. If you want to be exalted, you've got to humble yourself. If you want to live, you've got to die. So what happens here? The ones who stay in Jerusalem say, Oh, listen, the bad guys are the ones that God's taken out. Go far from the Lord. We're with the Lord. And yet, what does it say? Who the good figs are? The ones who have gone. You see, we study this in Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. You don't try to outdo me, outthink me, outtry me. Just listen to me. Verse 16 says, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, speaking of the good figs going off to captivity, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore uh, say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Who's going to get the land? The ones who have been taken out. Because eventually that land has to be purified, has to be cleansed for God to bring His people, the true believer, the ones who will repent in captivity, the ones who will hang their harps on the trees and cry because of their captivity in a faraway land from the land that God had intended to give them. They will go there and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And God would give them a heart to know Him because as Yahweh, the Lord God, He could do that. He could give them a heart. Sovereignly gives them a heart to know Him. As He gave us a heart to know Jesus. We didn't really know Jesus. We may have known about Him. But let's face it. When the light of the glory of the gospel shone upon our hearts, all we saw was the sin and the wickedness, the naughtiness of our lives. And when we saw that, the only thing we could do was cry for mercy and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we confess Jesus. We confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. We believed in our heart that He that He's raised from the dead and, 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 and God gave us salvation. He saved us, but when He saved us, He gave us a renewed mind and He gave us a new heart. We're no longer to be the kind of people we were before we came to Christ. Please understand that. So... God gives them a new heart and, 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 and they would eventually give them one and they would resume their covenant relationship as God's chosen people with them because they would repent and they would return to God with all their heart. And only God knows this, you see. 
Only God knew this. And, and I want to share something with you. I, I, I have to do it. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's down about uh, five more chapters. But it's my favorite passage of Scripture. It's a life verse for me. I hope it is for you. Where God says in verse 11 of Jeremiah 29, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I tell you what, man can offer you hope, but I'll only take it because God can give it. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And it sounds like a lot of other places, and that's true. Why? Because this is only going to be partially fulfilled when when Judah returns back to Jerusalem and and, and to Judah, in effect to Israel. The further fulfillment is yet to come. That's when this really will make a lot more sense. That's the fulfillment when Jesus Christ returns. So lastly, we see then the contrast to the good figs. And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, verse 8 of our text, and as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely say, thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble. Notice. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, not for their good. Do you notice the difference? Here he says, I'll deliver them for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a shame, in other words, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Please consider that in chapters 28, which we haven't got to yet, chapters 28 and and 36 to 38, that passage, the people who remained in Jerusalem would treat Jeremiah harshly, Subjecting him to beating and imprisonment. It's going to happen again. We're going to see it again. Zedekiah and his associates and the people left behind by Babylon had refused to repent despite all the warnings God had given. They had chosen to continue in their sins, seeking to fulfill the lusts of their flesh and denying the Lord and His commandments. And escaping to Egypt would be no refuge for those people either. So the ones who stayed and the ones who went to Egypt, they thought, oh, we're going to be safe. Mm -mm. You see, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. They would see trouble and the harm due to them from the Lord. God's judgment included making the survivors living in Jerusalem and Egypt an object of of scorn to all the nations of the earth, as in verse 9. The reference to all suggested that God was referring to all future exiles and captivities of the Jewish people. There was to be the Babylonian exile of 586 uh, B.C. and the Roman exile in 70 A.D. Of course, uh, as well. And of course, there, uh, for there to be an exile, 
the nation first had to be conquered. For there to be an exile, the nation had to be conquered. Therefore, God told Jeremiah that he would use war as a means to execute his judgment against Judah. That's what we see in verse 10. And I will send the sword. That's war. A foreign nation, Babylon, would invade Judah and set up a siege around the capital, Jerusalem. As a result of the siege, the people would suffer famine and plague, starvation and disease, as well as the weapons of war. The sword would kill a large number of people. (coughs) And the survivors would be exiled from the promised land. As for the good figs, the change in the people would only occur partially during the exile. The final fulfillment, as I've been saying, is yet future when Jesus Christ returns. But listen to what's going to happen when Jesus does return. Turn to Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. We're almost done. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Doesn't that just bless you? I'll tell you why it should bless us as Christians. Because while that is reserved for those who will come to know Christ when He comes again, we already know Jesus. And we know the renewing of our mind, and we know the the renewal of our hearts. And we can say today that God is our God and we are His people. We can say that we know the Lord, not arrogantly, but humbly because of what we had to come to know about ourselves. That we were sinners, separated from God, and deserving of all punishment and all judgment because of our sin. And yet, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. And when God forgives our iniquity, all we can do is look to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on that cross for my sins. And I thank Jesus that he was taken down and put in a tomb for three days. I thank the Lord for that. Because that just shows us that he put that sin away. When he rose again on the third day, I just can't do anything but thank him. Because that says, if you believe me, that eternal life is yours. 
And folks, I didn't do anything to, 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 to deserve that. But neither did you. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. In Matthew 24, in verse 29, speaking more directly to the restoration of Israel, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You know what's interesting about that last verse there? The next verse, verse 32, mentions the parable of the fig tree. So figs and fig trees are still important to God, even to the very end. Warren Wiersbe said, In times of national catastrophe, no matter how discouraging the circumstances may be, God doesn't desert His faithful remnant. Rebels are scattered and destroyed, but true believers find God faithful to meet their needs and accomplish his great plans. The people who returned to the land after the captivity were by no means perfect, but they had learned to trust the true and living God and not to worship idols. If the captivity did nothing else, it purged the Jewish people of idolatry. Well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah were not accidents, they were appointments. For God was in control. And now the land would enjoy its Sabbaths. You go back and read Second Chronicles 36, 21. And it coincides with Leviticus 25, verse 14. And the people exiled in Babylon would have time to repent and seek the Lord. In far off Babylon, God the potter would remake his people. God the potter would take his people as clay as we saw in Jeremiah 18 and he would remake them in Babylon and they would return to the land chastened and cleansed. Let me remind you what it says in Hebrews 12:11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceable fruit, the good figs, the good, ripe, mature fruit. Let's pray.